1: The will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to Climactic. This episode is something special. On the 26th of July, 2018, a crowd gathered in the theater of the State Library of Victoria for a public lecture. Pre-COVID, these type of talks happened all the time, remember? People met in person to hear an expert speak. And even now, it's impossible to keep up with all the webinars and Zoom calls from groups. But in this episode, you'll get to hear a recording from 2018. The before times. In a room with people who were shuffling and coughing. And if you're missing that, the sounds of people gathered in a room, you're not alone. I was there on that night. And after the talk, I stuck around with a few friends who'd also attended to speak to the lecturer. Dr. Joelle Gergis. I'd intended to buy her book, Sunburnt Country, and with Climactic just a few months old, I was keen to start my library of signed climate books. But the books hadn't arrived at the state library that night, so instead I shared a quick chat with Joelle about the podcast, about her talk, and asked for and was given her email address. And flash forward to July 20th, 2020, Nearly two years on to the day, till when I next heard Joelle's voice.
0: And maybe subconsciously, um, I guess I'm I'm grappling with those feelings of overwhelm and something that feels a bit out of control. From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. Recently, she wrote for the Monthly magazine about new climate models and how the terror of what she's seeing in the science has started to invade her dreams. The new research predicts outcomes that are far worse than before. Today, Joelle Gerges on what she calls the last
1: fork in the road. I remembered how kind and generous Joelle had been. And i realized that here was an ipcc lead author willing to speak about her feelings of fear and dread and that was powerful of course i wasn't alone in thinking that and the monthly had run a letter joelle wrote about her troubled sleep and teeth grinding and fear of what the climate modeling is telling us about the very near future it was compelling reading but it would be made even better by hearing her say it aloud So I reached out and was thrilled that she agreed and recorded her article from her home in Canberra, where she now teaches environmental science at ANU. You'll hear that now, but I just wanted to take the chance to thank Joelle for her kindness two years ago, after her talk at the State Library, and for giving us some of her limited time to record what follows, around a full teaching load, and preparing the upcoming IPCC 6th assessment final synthesis report is due in 2022 and as you'll hear we'll need to prepare for bad news but the best person to tell you that is an author of that report herself
0: witnessing the unthinkable by joel Gerges. it's 3 a.m and i'm awake again it's no exaggeration to say that my work as a climate scientist now routinely keeps me up at night I keep having dreams of being inundated, huge monstrous waves bearing down on me in slow motion. Sometimes I stop resisting and allow myself to be sucked in. Other times, I watch as a colossal tsunami builds offshore. I panic, immediately sensing that I don't stand a chance. I watch the horizon disappear before turning to bolt to higher ground. Around me, people are calmly going about their business. High water is menacing my subconscious. Trying to help me grapple with the overwhelm I feel in my waking life. My teeth ache from the nocturnal grinding that my dentist now just acknowledges with a sigh. As one of the dozen or so Australian lead authors involved in writing the physical science basis of the sixth assessment report of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, it's no wonder I'm on edge. Before the coronavirus pandemic swept the world, The scientific community was reeling from the most catastrophic bushfire season in Australian history. We all watched on in horror as the fires savaged our country, releasing more carbon dioxide in a single bushfire season than the country emits in an entire year. An arc of destruction tore through our native forests, from the subtropical rainforests of Queensland, through the temperate forests of southern New South Wales and eastern Victoria, all the way across to the coastal bushland of South Australia. A terrifying amount of Australia's World Heritage areas were burnt. At least 80% of the Blue Mountains protected area and 53% of the ancient Gondwanan rainforest network. These are the last of the last of such precious places. Areas that have clung on since the age of dinosaurs, forced to contend with the processes of evolution playing out in Fast Forward. Instead of adapting gradually over thousands or millions of years, entire ecosystems were radically transformed in the space of a single summer, not even a nanosecond in geologic time. The urgent national conversation we needed to have about climate change following this collective trauma never happened. Instead, we were all forced to retreat into our bolt holes as a deadly plague took hold. We abandoned the global common and life shrunk to an intensely personal scale. And there we have remained in suspended animation waiting for the health crisis to pass for some air of normality to return to our lives through it all scientists across the world have been working around the clock to progress the ipcc's monumental assessment of the global climate a cycle that typically takes six years to complete as part of this effort A group of Australian scientists published an analysis of the latest generation of climate models, assessing what they are telling us about Australia's future. After years of refinements, the new models now contain significant improvements in the simulation of complex physical processes associated with clouds and convection, essentially the transfer of heat through the fluid motion of the atmosphere in the ocean. These updates have influenced estimates of what is termed climate sensitivity. A measure of the relationship between changes in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and the corresponding level of warming. The results have provided an alarming revision of the temperature increase we thought possible. It is something IPCC scientists are grappling to understand and communicate, as it has dire implications for the feasibility of achieving the Paris Agreement targets for reducing global emissions. The current goal is to keep global warming to well within two degrees above pre-industrial levels and as close to 1.5 degrees as possible. This is to avoid instabilities in the planetary processes that have kept our climate steady for close to 12,000 years. That is for all of modern human civilization. According to this new study led by scientists at the CSIRO and the Bureau of Meteorology, the worst-case scenario could see Australia warm up to seven degrees above pre-industrial levels by the end of the century. On average, The results on 20 models show a warming of 4.5 degrees, with a range between 2.7 and 6.2. As two of the study's authors, Michael Gross and Julie Arblaster noted in the conversation, the new values are a worrying possibility that no one wants, but one we must still grapple with. They quoted the researchers of another recent climate study who said, what scares us is not that the model's equilibrium climate sensitivity is wrong, but it might be right. Another profoundly significant result is buried 16 pages deep into the paper. The scientists show that this revision now means that two degrees of global warming is likely to be reached sometime around 2040 based on our current high emissions trajectory. The implications of this are unimaginable. We may witness planetary collapse far sooner than we once thought. I was so disturbed by the new model results that I found it impossible to get back to my work. How can we not understand that life as we know it is unravelling before our eyes? That we have unleashed intergenerational warming that will be with us for millennia. If this really is the end of days, how can a climate scientist like me make the best use of the time I have left? In recent years, I've looked to brave colleagues who are becoming increasingly vocal about the climate emergency. One of the scientists I admire most is Professor Terry Hughes one of the world's leading experts on coral reefs and our foremost authority on the Great Barrier Reef. In late March, just before the national lockdown took effect, Terry and his colleagues rushed to conduct an aerial survey of the third mass bleaching event to strike the reef since 2016. It is the first time that severe bleaching impacted upon virtually the entire range of the Great Barrier Reef, including large parts of the Southern Reef spared during the 2016 and 2017 events. It's hard to hide from the reality that the entire system is in an advanced state of ecological collapse. In desperation, Terry took to Twitter, sharing his experience of surveying the carnage. It's been a shitty, exhausting day on the Great Barrier Reef. I feel like an art lover wandering through the Louvre as it burns to the ground. By the end of his fieldwork, he was a broken man. I'm not sure I have the fortitude to do this again. The honesty of his despair allowed my own to crystallise into a visceral sense of dread that is deepening by the day. We have arrived at a point in human history I think of as the great unravelling. Recently, I shared a statistic with my climatology students as I explained the latest mass bleaching event. 99% of the world's tropical coral reefs will disappear with two degrees of global warming. This future no longer feels impossibly far away. It's happening before our eyes. Looking around the room, I couldn't help but feel sorry for them. They have inherited a planetary mess, yet are more distracted and disconnected from each other, themselves and the natural world than any generation that has ever lived. As each season passes, it's painfully clear that we are witnessing the destabilisation of the Earth's climate. There are things we can still save, but it's now too late for some areas such as the Great Barrier Reef and tracts of ancient rainforest. In Australia we wear our badge of resilience with a hefty dose of national pride. But scientists on the front line of the climate crisis understand that some things in life, once gone, can never be replaced. If the new models turn out to be right, there is no way we can adapt to the catastrophic level of warming projected for a country like Australia. Even placing the new models aside, The 2019 UN Environment Programme's Emissions Gap Report shows that a continuation of current global emission reduction policies will see the Earth's average temperature rise a staggering 3.4 to 3.9 degrees by 2100. If we continue along our current path, by any measure, we will sail past the Paris Agreement targets in a handful of decades. Some of our most precious ecosystems will never recover including some of what was destroyed in Australia during our black summer. Gutted landscapes will struggle on, trying to regain some semblance of an equilibrium. But the truth is, the destruction we have unleashed will reverberate throughout the ages. We are witnessing the unthinkable, facing the unimaginable. Psychologically, many people already sense it's the beginning of the end. But is this the end of the era of fossil fuels, or life as we know it? As the planetary crisis accelerates, we must confront the reality that what we do now will forever alter the course of humanity and all life on Earth. My dreams are warning me that a metaphorical tsunami is approaching, threatening to destroy all that we hold dear. We must wake up and rush to higher ground before it is too late.
1: Thank you, Joelle. I know you're not feeling great after that how could you but without taking anything from the reality that joelle just laid out we're not going to leave you there no instead we're going to take you back to 2018 for an abridged version of that talk she gave at the state library joelle is a paleoclimatologist, and that fields and her research into australia's long history of climate variability is fascinating i recommend you do what i never have since that night when the books didn't arrive at the State Library, and get Joel's book, Sunburnt Country. You'll learn how Australia is a continent long vulnerable to climate extremes and variability. Tim Flannery called the book, "...a marvelous investigation of Australia's climate and how we are affecting it." Now, here's Joel on July 26th, 2018. Thanks to the State Library of Victoria, for making this recording available for public use.
0: Good evening, everyone. It's my great pleasure to be here tonight to share my new book with you. This is the story of my 10-year quest to join the dots between the things we now understand about natural climate variability and human-caused climate change here in Australia. Sunburn Country pieces together our national story about climate change for the first time in the hope that it starts an important conversation that we need to have as Australians. I know it's really easy to let the facts and figures wash over you, but in this book I've tried to make it really clear how climate change is threatening the things we care about the most. And tonight is also an invitation for you to allow yourself the permission to connect your head with your heart, to really imagine what climate change means for you and for our collective future. And so everybody would be familiar with Dorothea McKellar's poem, My Country. The second stanza is one of the most iconic pieces of Australian poetry. It reads, I love a sunburnt country, a land of sweeping plains, of ragged mountain ranges, of droughts and flooding rains. I love her far horizons, I love her jewel sea, her beauty and her terror, the wide brown land for me. And this was actually written in 1904 after witnessing the breaking of the Federation drought on her family's property in the Hunter Valley region of New South Wales in about 1904. And it captures the quintessential character of Australian climate variability and extremes. And this iconic verse is is really now regarded by many Australians as a universal statement of our nation's connection to the land. And so everyone here tonight knows that weather and climate extremes are a part of life in our country. We're a land that's subjected to droughts and flooding rains, to bushfires, to dust storms, cyclones. We are a nation very vulnerable We're very vulnerable to weather and climate extremes. Are all of these extremes just part of natural variability? Well, the Bureau of Meteorology's official records begin in 1900, which while they're the very best records that we have, it doesn't give us a complete view of the range of natural variability that we can experience. And I really wanted to know, well, what actually happened before 1900? And in 2009, I was awarded an Australian Research Council Linkage Grant to look at the long-term history of Australian climate variability and extremes. The project was known as the South Eastern Australian Recent Climate History Project, or the SEARCH Project, and we partnered with 10 organisations including the Bureau of Meteorology, the National State Libraries in Sydney, here in Victoria, uh, and Canberra, and also the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, Melbourne Water, and a range of other organisations. And the historical record actually revealed a really fascinating history of our nation's climatic past. And our task was to gather up as many data sources as possible to reconstruct our climate history to get a sense of how unusual recent climate extremes are in a longer term record. So the central question was, what can we learn about our climate from studying the past? It turns out a lot. Many people don't realise that an enormous amount of weather and climate information is found within historical records, like the ones that are housed here at the State Library. Early explorer records, early settler accounts, government correspondence, weather diaries, ship log books, newspapers and even farm records. And as scientists, we rarely find ourselves delving into the very rich historical collections of our state and national libraries and archives. But when we did, we came across an incredibly diverse array of material that contained invaluable weather, climate and information that could be used to reconstruct our climate history. So along with information like which transports were hired to carry convicts to Botany Bay, sometimes right up the back, tucked up there, was information about the weather. And so I came across the first documented account of Australian drought conditions in 1790 to 1791, which I'll I'll give you a bit of a taste. February 1791. The heat was so excessive that immense numbers of the large fox bat were seen dropping into the water. Many dropped dead while on the wing. In several parts of the harbour, the ground was covered with different sorts of small birds, some dead, others gasping for water. From the numbers which fell into the brook at Rose Hill, the water was tainted for several days. It was supposed that more than 20,000 of them were seen within the space of a mile. And so we know this is a really evocative description of the impact of heat stress on local wildlife. And we know that mass mortality of flying foxes is known to occur when temperatures exceed 42 degrees. And some of you might remember during January and February 2009, during the Black Saturday event, uh, nearly 5,000 flying foxes died at the Yarabend Park here in Melbourne. And these conditions continued on into the winter of 1791, where the ground was d- described as being so dry, hard and literally burnt up that it was almost impossible to break it with a hoe. And until this time, there had been no hope or probability of the grain vegetating. So this is a direct comment on agriculture, which is really interesting in terms of being able to see how people were actually responding to our weather and climate extremes. and something you can't really get out of the numerical weather records. And so what we did is we collated as many historical records as possible to reconstruct Australia's climate history back to 1788 as part of this search project. It's the first time it had been attempted in such a comprehensive way. And what it did is it revealed new periods of droughts and floods that were previously either unknown or very poorly described. And it allowed us to look at the impacts of past climate extremes and think about our vulnerability to natural disasters. And while what we uncovered in the historical documents was really fascinating, but being scientists, we wanted to cross-check our results with early weather records to see how well these narrative accounts lined up with quantitative weather observations. And in 2008, I stumbled across Australia's oldest weather record kept by William Dawes from 1788 to 1791. Remarkably, the microfilm Of the journal was actually kept at the Bellew Library at the University of Melbourne. The original is held at the Royal Society in London which I went and saw in 2009 and it's really important record because it's one of the handful of weather records with such fine detail for that period from the southern hemisphere which covers the late 18th century and William Dawes took daily temperature, air pressure, wind conditions and remarks four to six times every single day. And this record was left untouched for 220 years until I analysed the record in 2008. And the results lined up remarkably well. And so I published the work to highlight the potential of historical records in understanding contemporary climate variability and climate change. I saw this as a bit of a proof of concept study in terms of the kind of information we could get from historical records. Another gem I came across was a ship log that was kept aboard the Sirius, which was the flagship of the first fleet. And William Bradley kept daily noon temperatures as the ships made their eight-month voyage from England to Australia in 1787 to 1788. There are also reports of uh, snow as they rounded Tasmania in, in, in January 1788 and very cold and wet conditions and sails ripping and howling winds and convicts on their knees at prayers. They really had a really hard time. The surgeon on board the Sirius said, it blew a perfect hurricane. I never before saw a sea in such a rage. But little did they know that it was really just a sign of, of things to come in terms of Australia's dramatic weather. But along with historical documents, we sometimes came across incredibly beautiful artworks like this watercolour painting of a flood on the Hawkesbury River. And our project partners uh, from the National Library, the State Library here in Victoria and the State Library in New South Wales, also sent many images and early photographs our way. And it was an opportunity to discover the stories behind the images or to bring to life the conditions described in the historical record. For example, the Great Flood of March 1806 on the Hawkesbury River destroyed property, farms, livestock, and according to newspaper reports of the time, many people lost everything that they possessed. And there were such extensive crop losses to the colony's food bowl that it reduced it to a state little short of starvation and food had to be very severely rationed. But just like the modern-day SES service, rescue operations in the early 1800s were coordinated by volunteers dedicated to helping their local communities. And hundreds of people were actually rescued from rooftops or rafts floating in floodwater by rowboat, if you can imagine that. Hundreds of people taken from the rooftops. But of course, humans have been in Australia long before Europeans arrived. And the first Australians have followed intricate cycles of flowering plants and animal cues for well over 40,000 years. And this knowledge is passed on from generation to generation through stories. And an intimate knowledge of the environment really was a matter of life or death. It was used for practical purposes, like tracking hunting grounds or identifying safe travelling routes as the seasons began to shift. And oral history is shared by elders With their children as they grow up experiencing their local country. And the Bureau of Meteorology have been working with a range of local communities to try and gather up these different stories to to bring together what we do understand. And in some parts of the country, Aboriginal people recognise up to six distinct seasons, like in the Grampians region, and they relate to climate features as well as environmental events such as flowering plants, uh, fruiting signals and animal behavioural patterns. For example, July is known as uh, nesting bird season in the Grampians. It's the wettest time of the year characterized by dramatic weather changes. And so what this tells us is that there's a wealth of untapped indigenous weather knowledge in the form of stories. And luckily, knowledge about weather is not secret business. It can be shared with anyone. So there's much that we have to learn from First Australians about our natural climate cycles, but also the concept of caring for country, which is being better custodians on the land on which we live. But long before humans were keeping weather records or telling stories, the natural world has been busy tattooing the passing of time year after year for centuries. An incredible amount of information lies in the stories held in ancient tree rings, in coral skeletons, and in air bubbles trapped in ice. And all of this information lies well beyond our society's collective memory. So these biological and geological records capture natural climate variability. And it's really important because it provides us with a way of extending our instrumental climate record back in time because these records have these annual layers or even seasonal layers. And what we can do is directly compare them with instrumental weather records and it allows us to extend our estimates of temperature and rainfall back in time. This field of study is known as paleoclimatology. So paleo just means ancient and climatology is all of accumulated weather. And it does, what it does is provides us with estimates of pre-industrial or natural climate variability to assess recent climate extremes and their causes. And recently I was involved in a rather large-scale effort to try and consolidate all of these different records from all over the world. It was a global effort that was coordinated by a group called uh, Past Global Changes, which is run out of Switzerland. And the aim was to try and... Uh, consolidate all of these annually resolved uh, paleoclimate records from these different parts of the world. And I was the leader of the Australasian Group, which was dealing with Australia, New Zealand and the surrounding waters uh, from 2009 until the project ended last year. And our team at the University of Melbourne developed the region's first 1,000-year temperature reconstruction using these records. And that's what this looks like. So the black line just represents year-to-year temperature variations um, that we have derived from using things like tree rings, corals and ice cores, and the red line just represents the instrumental temperatures that we see. And what we found is that the warmest 30-year period in the last thousand years occurs right at the end of the record from 1985 to 2014, which was the last data point that we could analyse for this study. And we also looked at climate model simulations to get a sense of, well, what is causing these variations? And we found that greenhouse gases from human activity Are required to reproduce the rate and the magnitude of the warming we've observed in our region since 1950. So it was one of these definitive pieces of studies, pieces of work that showed that it's no longer just natural variability. And this was quite important because up until this point, we'd just been really looking at the instrumental climate record. And for the first time, we had a very fine scale look at what the geologic record could say. And we also um, ran this using four different methods and a range of other different things. So it was quite a robust result. But to our surprise, it provoked major backlash from climate change sceptics from 2012 through to 2016. Our team received abusive emails, legal freedom of information requests for up to like four years of our email correspondence with our colleagues, hate mail, the whole works. And it actually had a really high personal toll and it was one of those moments in my career where it was really much, very much a fork in the road. You know, the work is hard enough, but to also have that kind of uh, very difficult, I guess, working environment was one of those sort of soul-searching moments where you have to have a bit of a think about what you're doing. And but thankfully, um, I had a really terrific mentor. Some of you might know Professor David Carolli, um, who who was it was really terrific in terms of helping me get through that very difficult period. It wasn't all bad. <laughs> so. During this very difficult time associated with the temperature reconstruction, which went on and on and on for a number of years, we were very honoured to receive a major national science award. Um, Some of you might have heard of the Eureka Prizes. They're considered the Oscars of Australian science, so they're a little bit of a big deal. Um, And in 2014, The Search Project won a Eureka Prize for consolidating our region's climate history using these historical documents, early weather records, and also paleoclimate records. And we were also up against pioneering medical research, so it wasn't just just for climate um, research or anything like that, so we were really thrilled to get the gong on the night. And the core team was made up of mostly early career women, as you can see here, Uh, and what I think it's done is really foster significant progress in this emerging field of historical climatology, which I think is, is really valuable. And so... What does looking at the past help us understand about modern weather and climate extremes that we're experiencing right now? Is it just a case of history repeating? So what I'd like to do now is highlight a few examples of how our extremes are starting to change. So following an exceptional two-week heatwave that swept across South Australian Victoria during the height of a brutal drought, 13-year drought, ferocious bushfires blazed across Victoria on the 7th of February 2009, and you'd all know that as Black Saturday. Melbourne set a new temperature record of 46.4 degrees on the 7th of February 2009. It was three degrees higher than the old February record of, um, in 1983 and 0.8 degrees hotter than the all-time record of Black Friday in 1939. And conditions were so extreme that it actually redefined the way severe bushfires are now rated. A new catastrophic fire danger level was developed in the aftermath of these fires. Entire towns like Marysville, just 100 kilometres to the northeast of Melbourne, were effectively wiped off the map. And while the fires killed 173 people and destroyed 2,000 homes, a further 374 people died in the preceding heatwave. That's more than double the number from the fires themselves, causing the state morgues to actually overflow. And I talk about this in my book. And while 173 people lost their lives during the fires, the RSPCA estimates that more than one million animals were incinerated during the fires. Many severely injured animals had to be put down, and habitat loss can last for some time in intensely burnt areas as trees and understory need time to recover. And so the true extent of the impacts of the Victorian bushfires on wildlife might not be known for many years. And while the Black Saturday bushfires caused over $4 billion worth of direct damage, it doesn't take into account these intangible ecological and environmental impacts that are really hard to estimate. So the loss of our wildlife doesn't really get factored in to to these types of equations. But I'd argue that a lot of Australians would actually really value that. But interestingly, 158 years earlier, almost to the day, on the 6th of February 1851, the Black Thursday bushfires blazed across Victoria. There were reports of scorching winds, flames, smoke and blazing cinders sweeping across the north of Melbourne, obscuring the daylight till men cried out in the fear of the day of judgment. Ashes were falling everywhere and the wind was like a blast from a furnace. Candles had to be burnt inside the houses to see. And the people of Melbourne were so terrified by the ferocious conditions and they actually had to flee the fires again by rowboat, which you can imagine would have been just a terrifying ordeal. And a really fantastic resource that we used from here at the State Library of Victoria were the Government Gazettes and we found these really nice meteorological abstracts that we were able to go back and look at the weather conditions during this event and we found that An area close to the quarter of the entire state of Victoria burned during the Black Thursday bushfires, which is ten times the size of the Black Saturday fires in 2009. Yet only a maximum temperature of approximately 42 degrees was recorded in those historical weather records compared to the 46.4 degrees that we experienced on the 7th of February 2009. And perhaps it suggests that we have not seen the full extent of our natural variability, meaning that our estimation of future risk might be underestimated. And piecing together our climate history for the first time has provided an unprecedented perspective on the past and just how vulnerable Australian societies are to weather and climate extremes. It have been for a really long time. And we know that Australia's warming climate has caused an increase in extreme fire weather and that the length of the fire season across large parts of the country since the 1970s. And this increase in extreme fire weather is entirely consistent with the state-of-the-art climate change projections that are provided by the CSIRO and the Bureau of Meteorology. And while there are differences in the climate change projections for different parts of Australia, the average temperature increase across the country will typically be about four degrees by the end of the century, based on current business as usual scenarios. The biggest changes will impact inland Australia, where up to 5.3 degrees of warming is projected under our high emissions scenario by the end of the century. It's very likely that parts of the outback will record summer temperatures over 50 degrees Celsius, making much of inland Australia increasingly uninhabitable. It also have major impacts on desert tourism in places like Uluru, which is a major contributor to the Australian economy. But extreme heat is also an issue on the coast. In the summer of 2016-2017, was the warmest on record for Sydney. It was a huge 2.8 degrees above average. For example, on the 11th of February, Richmond in the western suburbs of Sydney recorded a maximum temperature of 47 degrees. It's the highest February temperature ever recorded in the Sydney basin. And based on the the recently observed increase in in extreme temperatures, it's very possible that future summers in Australia's most densely densely populated cities like Sydney and Melbourne will soar past the 50 degree mark in years to come. And so we know that Australian temperatures have increased by about 1 degree since Dorothea McKellar wrote her famous poem. So all natural variability is now occurring on the background of a warming climate. And that is really a a take home point that I think sometimes gets a little bit overlooked. We've always had this variability, but we have this warming trend now that is is being uh, factored into all of our climate. And the number of extreme heat days, so the warmest 1% of records experienced across Australia are, are now happening more often as you can see in this graph. According to the Bureau of Meteorology, seven of Australia's 10 warmest years on record have occurred since 2005. 2013 was our warmest year, followed by 2005 and 2017. And just recently, Sydney experienced its warmest April day on record, reaching 35.4 in the city and 36.8 at the airport, exceeding average temperatures for April by more than 10 degrees. And it's now possible to run climate modeling studies that compare the likelihood of an extreme event happening in a world with greenhouse gases from human activities to to a world with just natural variability. And this scientific field is known as detection and attribution, and Australian researchers are world leaders in this emerging area of science. And recent work has shown that temperature, the temperatures experienced during Australia's warmest year on record in 2013, were found to be virtually impossible to achieve without the presence of human influences on the climate system. And so hotter temperatures lead to more evaporation, which leads to more water in the atmosphere available to fall fall as rain. And a warmer and wetter atmosphere causes an increase in extreme rainfall in between periods of severe drought, which has major impacts on our communities and environment. So as the climate continues to warm, we can expect longer and hotter droughts followed by torrential deluges. And the climate conditions experienced over the past 20 years are a clear example of what can be expected. The millennium drought affected southeastern Australia from 1997 to 2009. It was the lowest 13-year rainfall period in the historical record. And the rainfall deficits were nearly double the previous record set during the World War II drought from 1933 to 45. It had major impacts on the Murray-Darling Basin, which is Australia's food bowl. And we actually saw rivers run dry, as you can see here on the Darling River in 2006. And so while we've always had drought in Australia, our droughts are now occurring on the background of a hotter climate, making them even, more, even hotter than they were in the past. So Australia's average temperature has increased by one degree since 1910, with about 0.7 of that warming occurring since 1950. And some work we did during the search project calculated that the Murray River streamflow deficits experienced during the millennium drought were a 1 in 1500 year event. So very statistically unusual events and not just natural variability. And then the drought broke spectacularly from 2010 to 2012. A La Niña, which brings a lot of rainfall to eastern Australia, resulted in the nation's wettest two-year period on record. And during this event, 78% of Queensland was declared a disaster zone. But alarmingly, History tells us that the floods of 1893 and 1974 were actually a lot worse. The Brisbane floods of February 1893 remain the worst on record for the region. River flood heights were around two metres higher than the conditions experienced during the January 2011 floods. So it really is confronting to imagine what an event of a similar magnitude to the 1893 floods would do to a city that housed close to 2.4 million people in 2016, compared with the estimated 28,000 people who lived in the area, in 1893. The floods had a colossal price tag of $14 billion. It's Australia's most expensive flood disaster on record. Over 2.5 million people were affected by widespread property damage, their homes submerged in brown floodwaters for days, caking all their possessions in mud and silt. And coping with loss and change can be really psychologically very difficult. Grantham local Derek Schultz says his spirit was broken when the Queensland floods destroyed almost everything he'd ever known as home. More than one in every 10 people exposed to natural disasters are reported to develop psychological distress with some symptoms persisting for the rest of their lives. Suicide rates in regional Australia spike during droughts, so even our toughest farmers are really suffering. And that sequence I just showed you is a very clear example of a destructive sequence of extremes from severe drought to exceptional flooding. So we had the Millennium Drought followed by record-breaking La Nina rains. And what this does is it also destroys precious topsoil when torrential rain causes flash flooding instead of recharging underground aquifers. And it's very hard to recover from these back-to-back disasters, both financially and psychologically. And it starts to wear down the resilience of people and communities. So it's clear to me that Australia's climate has become more extreme as the planet continues to warm. So what does this mean for future life as Australians and and does it even matter? Well, Australia is considered one of the most megadiverse countries on the planet, along with places like Brazil, Madagascar and Papua New Guinea. We have the highest number of native plants and animals that are only found here and nowhere else on Earth. Our incredible environmental heritage underpins our economy through agriculture, tourism, fisheries, as well as our society's function through well-being of, of our health, our lifestyles and also our safety. But when it comes to climate change, we are considered the most vulnerable country in the developed world. So the land of drought and flooding rains is becoming even more extreme in a warmer world. And nowhere is that clearer than off the Queensland coast. The Great Barrier Reef snakes over 2,000 kilometres along the coastline of eastern Australia and contains nearly 3,000 separate coral reefs. It's the largest living organism on the planet. It's home to the world's largest collection of corals and a stunning array of tropical fish and and also turtle species. The Great Barrier Reef has an economic, social and icon asset value of $56 billion and it supports 64,000 jobs And contributed $6.4 billion to the economy in 2015-16. The Great Barrier Reef is listed as a UNESCO World Heritage Site as it is globally recognised as an area of exceptional biodiversity. David Attenborough, the great naturalist, describes it as the most beautiful natural wonder that he's ever seen in close to 65 years of documenting the natural world. And then on the background of the world's warmest year on record, In 2016, 93% of the Great Barrier Reef bleached. 30% of the corals turned white and died from heat stress associated with high ocean temperatures. You can think of that as a marine heat wave. And mass bleaching of coral reefs was first only described in the scientific literature during the 1980s. It had never been seen in our region until 1998, where there was a bit of bleaching that happened on the reef. But then, tragically, in 2017, two thirds of the reef bleached again, causing a further dieback of a further 19% of corals. And the event holds the disturbing record of being the only back-to-back bleaching event in recorded history. So as it stands, 50% of the Great Barrier Reef is now dead. I'll say that again, 50% of the Great Barrier Reef is now dead. One of the seven great natural wonders of the world is now in a terminal stage of decline. Professor Terry Hughes, Director of the ARC Centre of Excellence for Coral Reef Studies, says that this mass bleaching event heralds a transformation which has altered the reef forever. And our reef will never be the same again after this event. This is a profound loss, not just for Australians, but for all of humanity. Climate modelling studies now compare the likelihood of an event like this happening in a world with greenhouse gases from human activities to a world with just natural variability. And researchers from the University of Melbourne have calculated that the 2016 mass bleaching event was made 175 times more likely because of climate change. And under business as usual greenhouse gas emissions, 99% of the world's coral reefs are predicted to bleach every single year by 2043. That's just 25 years away, certainly within the lifetime of many people here in this audience. And Another major change taking place in our coastal environment is an increase in sea level. Global sea level rise is currently underway and in places like Western Antarctica is now considered unstoppable by some experts. At least one metre of global sea level rise is considered likely by the end of the century. But in May last year, a report came out from the US revising its physically plausible global sea level rise estimates to as much as 2 to 2.7 metres by the end of the century based on high emission scenarios. And coastal risk Australia have mapped inundation risks associated with a two metre sea level rise at high tide around Australia. Many of Australia's most densely populated areas will be at risk of becoming uninhabitable or subjected to an increased risk of inundation by destructive storm surges as the sea level continues to rise. Here in Victoria, Melbourne's southern suburbs of Port Melbourne, St Kilda, Docklands and the CBD area around South Bank will be the worst affected areas as you can see in this image. Events that used to be considered floods in our present climate will just be the new high tide in the future. And in this future, maps of the world, not just of Australia, would have to be redrawn as the sea level level rises and new rainfall and temperature patterns sculpt new landscapes and coastlines in response to a drastically altered climate. And just as a reminder, 85% of the Australian population lives on the coast. And since 1993, Australian tide gauges have shown an average rise of 2.1 to 3.1 millimetres per year, with regional impacts determined by the shape and the depth of the seafloor. At Fort Denison in Sydney, in Sydney Harbour, there's been an overall rise in sea level of more than five centimetres over the late 20th century. And while this doesn't sound like much, it means the difference between your home being safe and dry or flooded by high tides and storm surges. During a series of east coast lows in June 2016, a storm surge caused extensive flooding and damage to coastal infrastructure from Queensland all the way down to Tasmania. And the enormous scale of the event was also really unusual. A few hundred kilometres are more common for these types of systems, rather than vast tracts of the eastern seaboard. And although the system was only associated with a relatively moderate storm surge of around 30 centimetres in Sydney, it combined with high tide, generating damaging waves that resulted in local inundation of low-lying areas and widespread erosion along the New South Wales coast. Large chunks of the beach were gouged out by huge eight-metre waves in in Sydney's northern beaches, and some residents of Collaroy reported having 20 metres of their backyards washed away by the storms. So as I was writing this book, it became very clear to me that we are now facing the largest intergenerational ethical challenge in human history. If we continue along our current high emissions path, global average temperatures are projected to increase between 2.6 and 4.8 degrees by the end of the century. Three degrees is considered likely, which represents an overshooting of the upper limit of the two degree target set by the United Nations Paris Agreement. And this figure shows the intergenerational legacy of global warming. And so many people here in the room tonight will live to witness these changes. And if you won't be around, then it's very likely that your children or your grandchildren will inherit this apocalyptic future. The science is crystal clear. Climate change is happening right now. We are already committed to dangerous levels of climate change, and Australia is the most vulnerable nation in the developed world. Out of the 60 top emitters worldwide, Australia is ranked 57th in terms of its climate change performance index. It's ranked as a very low performing country only ahead of Korea, Iran and Saudi Arabia. I believe that we can do better. And what we do now will shape future life in Australia and how much will be lost for future generations. Putting the brakes on greenhouse gas emissions will help reduce the level of dangerous climate change that we actually experience. It's a little bit like addressing a treatable health condition sooner rather than later to avoid the worst case scenario. The question is, do we want to leave future generations with a stable and livable climate that most of us have enjoyed? The good news is that all the technology we need to limit the amount of dangerous climate change already exists. And that surprised me as I was doing the research for this book. There's actually a clean energy revolution happening all over the world and even here in Australia. According to our clean energy regulator, more than one in five Australian households now have solar panels installed on their roof, which is the highest rate per capita in the world. Queensland is the leader in household solar, where nearly a third of households in the Sunshine State now have solar rooftops. And given that Australia is drenched in sunshine, it's actually quite insane that only 3% of the country's electricity is generated by solar energy. Huge untapped potential exists. And renewables are already creating nearly double the jobs generated by the local coal mining industry, suggesting that the tide has already turned on Australia's clean energy revolution. And there's this nice quote that I like which says, we're in the midst of a sustainability revolution that has the magnitude of the industrial revolution, but the speed of the digital revolution. Which basically says that once we decide to get behind this, we just, we'll just be away. And there are a growing number of credible studies detailing scenarios to achieve 100% reduction in Australia's greenhouse gas emissions from all sectors, not just electricity, which our government is very focused on, but also transport and agriculture. So I believe that we are witnessing a pivotal moment in human history that signals the end of the era of polluting fossil fuels and the dawn of the clean energy revolution. We just need the strength at the political level uh, to move away from fossil fuels and invest in this clean energy future. The other piece of good news is that Australia has a long history of local communities taking a stand for environmental protection and social justice. An iconic example is the fight to protect the Tasmanian wilderness areas during the late 1970s and early 1980s. Peter Drombrowski's photo of Rock Island Bend came to represent the beauty and the vulnerability of the Franklin River, and it helped influence the outcome of the federal election in March 1983. Because sometimes I think it really helps when we can actually see what it is that we have to lose. The Franklin Dam was never constructed because of community backlash. The new government under Bob Hawke stopped the dam from being built because it was deeply unpopular with voters. And the movement eventually led to the project's cancellation and became the most significant environmental campaign in Australian history. So we can do this. And many of you know that currently the federal government is planning to develop the biggest coal mine in Australia, the Carmichael Mine near Bowen in Queensland, with Indian mining company Adani, despite overwhelming Evidence that fossil fuel burning is causing dangerous levels of climate change and that the world needs to transition to renewable energy immediately to avert disaster. The Stop Adani movement is now made up of millions of individuals and community groups across Australia. And the movement has engaged people from all walks of life, from farmers, Indigenous people, environmentalists, the young, the old. Former Green Senator Bob Brown has said that stopping the Adani coal mine is this generation's most urgent call to action. There are grave concerns that the enormous scale of the proposed coal exports will threaten the already struggling Great Barrier Reef, as the terminal is located on the coastline of the UNESCO-listed World Heritage Area. And aside from being completely inconsistent with needing to transition to renewable energy, of huge concern to local farmers is the fact that the mine will use approximately 12 billion litres of water each year, which threatens to dry up the aquifers needed for the viability of agriculture in the Great Artesian Basin. The government also passed a controversial bill to amend the native title legislation, making it easier for companies like Adani to create division among Indigenous communities by only seeking partial instead of unanimous support which was previously needed for these controversial projects. Psychology tells us that blocking feelings of empathy and concern to avoid psychological pain is a common human defence mechanism that is designed to protect us from becoming too emotionally overwhelmed. It's a very human response to want to pull away from this. Endlessly distracting ourselves with mundane matters is a way of psychologically distancing ourselves from feeling conflicted and distressed by the realisation that we individually and collectively have an ethical dilemma to face around caring about each other and the future of all life on the planet. And I like this quote by Martin Luther King, which says, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about the things that really matter. And the time has come to connect our head with our heart and to open ourselves to the loss, but also the opportunities that we now face. This is not the time to look away and disengage. It is the time to have your voice heard. Even if you're an introvert like me and prefers to write books than be up here and and do this kind of thing, it's really important that it's, it's really up to us. Community groups, the young and the old, are now taking a stand for the things that really matter. And I believe that we are witnessing a pivotal moment in human history, and it is an invitation to exercise your power as a citizen and as a consumer to help write the next chapter of our history, the one where we finally take a stand for an environmentally sustainable future on planet Earth and protect our magnificent sunburned country for future generations. Thank you.
1: It's easy to forget our climate scientists, are people. Flesh and blood. Who suffer nightmares from their work. Who grind their teeth. I love that Joelle identifies Dr. Terry Hughes as someone she admires. And I'd love to see more of that in the climate community. Holding each other up as people. Taking the time to say, hey, you. I admire you. If you've got someone in the climate community you admire, send us a message about them. Find out how from climactic.com.au and go to Community Corner. Or, if you've got an idea for an episode about a figure you admire in the climate community world, or specifically Australia, get in touch at hello at climactic.fm. We'd love to help you tell that story, book that interview, raise your voice, and lift up someone else who's been important to you. Okay, that's all for now but see you again soon. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening. And from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times.